Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to open it to Luke chapter number 19. Luke chapter number 19. Uh, We are starting a new sermon series today that's going to last for about 13 weeks. Um, I don't know that I've been more excited about a sermon series than this one. Uh, I was sharing with with my Sunday school class this morning uh, just how powerful I think that this next sermon series is going to be. And the reason is because we're going to be walking through several different encounters in the Gospels that people had with Jesus. And the reason we want to do that is because we believe every person who encountered Jesus left not the same. They got there one way, encountered Jesus, things were changed, they left there not the same as when they got there. Now, why this is so beautiful to me is because there are so many faces in this room, even this morning, who have that same kind of testimony. You remember when you encountered Jesus, you remember what your life was like before, and you remember how you now are not the same because of what Jesus has done in your life. And so, I'm looking forward for for us from now till uh, about December uh, to be looking at different encounters that people had with Jesus. Now, what I also love about this series, and uh, I won't won't give any names or anything like that, I'll just give a little spoiler kind of thing here. Uh, This is going to be about 13 weeks long. I am only preaching seven out of the 13. Now you say, Danny, why is that? Because we have multiple people in our church who are also gifted in teaching, who have also met Jesus and left not the same. And so here's what we've done. We've invited some of our very own folks to speak and to share throughout this series. And so listen, I am so looking forward to hearing from multiple people about stories from the Gospels, about encounters with Jesus, especially because all of us have a story, all of us have left not the same. And so I can't remember being more excited about a series than this one. I can't wait for the upcoming weeks for us to hear what Jesus has for us and how he wants to continue to work and change us every single day. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next uh, few weeks. And uh, of course, we're looking forward to what God is going to do. Now, as I was getting ready to preach for this morning, I was kind of thinking about how much of a, of a movie fan that I am. Are there other movie fans in the room? You say, Danny, I love, I love movies, new movies, old movies. Like I even have those movies that when they come on as reruns on TV that I've seen a thousand times, I'm always going to stop to watch that one scene or watch the whole movie or whatever it is. You're, you're a movie fan. Well, you, if you're a movie fan out there, you probably got a couple movies that are your favorite. Now, if you're like me, you probably have a difficult time kind of rating those on a list. Someone was to ask me, Danny, what are your top 10 favorite movies? Well, to be honest, that's like saying, what are your top 10 favorite verses in the Bible? Like, it's kind of difficult. I like so many. So many have impacted me. I've enjoyed watching numerous videos because I am uh, a, a movie fan. But one movie that stuck out to me as I was thinking about Luke chapter 19 this morning was a a movie called Gladiator. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's got Russell Crowe in it. It's a little bit older now, uh, but just a a, a fascinating storyline in the movie. Now, just a, a disclaimer here. If you've got young kids... Just think about the idea of a gladiator and imagine that there may be some scenes that uh, are, are a little more graphic than maybe what you want. Nonetheless, it's a really cool story. In the movie Gladiator, 
It's about a Roman general by the name of Maximus. Now, Maximus, the storyline goes that as the current emperor is dying, he wants Maximus to kind of take over the the future and what's going to happen with Rome. But at the same time, as as this is happening, the the son of the emperor, Commodus, he's got his own plans for the throne. He's got his own plans for Rome moving forward. And so at the hands of Commodus, Maximus loses his entire family. He, in fact, should have lost his own life, but he is sent into slavery where he becomes a gladiator, right? And so there's the, uh, the, the name of the movie. Now, as the, as the movie progresses, Maximus is, is not just a gladiator or becomes a gladiator, but he rises in the ranks of the gladiators to being the best in all of Rome. People are chanting his name. Kids are sharing stories about the, the Spaniard, this, this guy named Maximus. But there's an interesting thing about gladiators. Now, you can watch the movie. I won't, I won't spoil anything for you. But the interesting thing about gladiators is regardless of their performance in the arena, their lives are not their own. As a matter of fact, even if they are victorious, even if they ha- have the best battle and victory that you've ever seen, their lives are still not in their own hands. It's not just about whether or not they win. As a matter of fact, in the movie, there's a scene where Emperor Commodus has the opportunity to say whether or not the gladiators will live. It was really determined upon whatever the emperor was feeling at that time. If you've ever seen the movie, you can remember the scene. It's when Emperor Commodus discovers who Maximus is or the Spaniard who is the gladiator. And when he discovers who he is, of course, he's shocked because he thought this guy was dead along with his his family, but he's not because we know he's the the hero of the story, so he can't die in the beginning. That would mess up the whole storyline, right? So there he is, right? He finds out, and the crowd is cheering, and they're they're going crazy because they want the gladiators to live. They have fought brilliantly, and they have been victorious, and the crowd is thinking the gladiators should live. And so in the movie, there's a scene where the emperor stretches out his hand, and his thumb is out, and he does this. And here's what we know. If he puts his thumb up, All the gladiators will live, right? And the crowd's chanting, live, 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 live. You could help me. It would be sounded cooler. Live. All right, it's all right. And so if he puts his thumb up, they live. But if he puts his thumb down, right, that's not good. They're they're all going to die. And so I'm not really worried about that other than this. I think a lot of times this is how people think about God. Seriously, I think they picture him like Emperor Commodus sitting up in heaven, looking at our lives, wondering if our thoughts are good enough or our decisions are good enough or our actions are good enough. And he's watching our lives and he's got his hand out like this. And if we do enough good, then maybe he'll put his thumb up and he'll approve of our lives. Or if we don't do enough good, maybe he's going to put his thumb down and, and, and he's going to disapprove of our lives and, 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 and we're going to be in a lot of trouble, right? Now, it's not necessarily life or death, but maybe it's about whether or not God's going to love us or help us or even notice us. He's up there and he's thinking, man, am I going to do good for them? Or am I going to do bad for them? And we're thinking, wow, can we do enough to make God love us? Now, listen, that might be you. I know for me, I've felt this way so many different times in my life. I've kind of had this picture of what we think of of, of Zeus, 
right? Sometimes that's how we think of God. And we just think that he's this big guy with a long white beard who's got lightning bolts in his hands. And the second that we do something wrong, he's, he's waiting for it to happen so that he can zap us, right? Like a lightning bolt's going to come down on your head. As a matter of fact, I remember some of my friends picking on me when I was younger because I wasn't exactly the best human being. And I remember them saying, Danny, if you walk into church this morning, you let me know because I know the building's going to fall down on you, right? And so there's this thought that this is how God is. If I'm living good, he loves me. If I'm living bad, he doesn't. But there's a problem. There's a problem with thinking that God's love for you is based on your behavior. Here's the problem. If you have to behave well in order to get close to God, you're only going to be close to God as long as you behave well. And you say, Danny, duh, you just said the same thing twice. I know. Here's the problem. We never behave well enough for God right? We're never good enough. We never do enough right things. We're never going to be perfect. And so if it's based on my behavior, then guess what? I won't have a relationship with God. But here's the good news, friends. Your relationship with God is not about you, and it's not about what you can or cannot do. As a matter of fact, it's about what God has already done. He loves you regardless of your failures, regardless of your mistakes. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, listen, this is not just Danny communicating this message to you. If you're thinking, Danny, you're just trying to make everybody feel good, this is not the case. When you read through the Gospels, you encounter moment after moment after moment again and again and again where we find Jesus displaying this simple truth that could change your life forever. Here's the truth. You ready? Jesus wants to love you, not judge you. He wants to love you. This is why he came. He came to express his love to a dying and sinful world. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what we discover about the encounter with Jesus that we'll read about in Luke chapter 19. So if you would, let's just start in verse number one. And let's walk through this story that may be familiar to most of you. And let's discover some of the things that Jesus teaches us about our encounter with him. Luke 19, let's, let's start verse number one. Here's what happens. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Who is he? Jesus, right? Once again, that's always the, the, the good answer. If you're not sure, if you were asleep in those moments and you heard a question, it's always just a good note to say Jesus, right? So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now Jericho should stand out in your minds immediately. This is a famous location in history. We remember the stories from Joshua where the people are going to take the promised land and God issues a beautiful promise to his people as they're standing before these massive walls that cannot be conquered. How are we going to take what God wants? How are we going to have the promise that God given us and he makes this statement to them in Joshua chapter 6 he says see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor we find this promise about the walls of Jericho and in this moment as Jesus is passing through he is headed to tear down a different set of walls friends In this case, it's not the walls that are protecting a city. It's the walls that are keeping a sinner like you and like me from encountering Jesus. Do you know where he's passing through to go to? He's going to the cross. Why? 
because he will, unlike Jericho, he will break down the walls for the final time. You see, the place that had to do with God's victory through Joshua is about to be the place that had to do with God's victory through Jesus. He is headed to tear down the walls of sin forever. Look at verse two, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now here is the character that encounters Jesus. This is the guy who will leave in these moments not the same as when we found him. Now we learn a couple of things about Zacchaeus from verse number two. Luke goes on, here's what he says about Zacchaeus. He says, he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, Danny, what does he mean when he gives us these details? Well, to note that he's a tax collector would be for Luke to inform us that he worked for the enemy Romans to take money from his own people to help Rome who were their conquerors. In other words, he's one of them. He's a Jew that's been taken captive by the Roman Empire, but he helps the enemy by taking from his own to aid the ones who have enslaved them. He's not just a tax collector, by the way. He's a chief tax collector. So this guy has worked his way up. He's been doing this for a little while. He's been taking advantage of his own people for a number of years, and he's been so good at it that now he's in charge of watching over other people who are tax collectors so that they can betray their own people. He also notes for us that he was rich. Now, you may be like me, and you see that phrase, and you think, okay, that's something good. I wish I was rich. I would like to have more money. I would like to have more stuff. Like, I'm with you on that, right? Typically, rich doesn't mean something negative. But in this case, it does. You know what Luke's trying to let us in on? This is a nice way of Luke saying that this guy, Zacchaeus, is a thief who stole from his own people and stole from the poor in order to make himself rich. You know what we know about tax collectors from this period of time? Not only would they take money from their own to pay their captors, but they would take more money than what their captors wanted. Why? So that they could become rich too. You say, man, I, I, this is a good thing. He's rich. No, no, no. Here's what Luke is trying to communicate to us. Zacchaeus is not the most popular guy in town. <laughs> what Luke's trying to tell us is, this guy is hated and probably has zero friends. Now listen, there is no doubt in anyone's mind that this guy is not worthy of Jesus. Now, I, I, I do want to just help you wrap your brain around something. This should sound a little familiar to everybody's story in the room. All of us sit in this moment before we know Jesus as a betrayer, as a traitor who's working against God as his enemy. We all stand as enemies of the cross before we meet Jesus. None of us in this room are worthy of what he's done for us, just like Zacchaeus is not worthy. Now, regardless of what you may be thinking about Zacchaeus, and trust me, so was everyone else that was in the crowd that day. They're thinking the same thing. He does teach us some valuable lessons about our response to Jesus, and maybe even more importantly, Jesus's response to us. He shows us some things that give us this large picture of how Jesus wants to relate to you. Let me show you the first one. Here it is. 
Zacchaeus' size doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. Zacchaeus' size doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. Now, Danny, why are you talking about his size? Well, look at verse 3 in Luke chapter 19. And he was seeking, talking about Zacchaeus, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Anybody in here ever been seeking to see who Jesus was? Ever had some questions? Ever wanted to know? Ever wanted to find out who this guy is that can change your life forever? This is Zacchaeus. This is the moment that he's in. He is seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now listen, Luke's already told us a little bit about Zacchaeus' sinfulness. Now he's going to tell us a little bit about his size. He is literally too short in order to see over the crowds to see this guy named Jesus. Now, as I was reading this and kind of processing through this story, all I could think about was poor Zacchaeus being blocked from seeing Jesus. And then I thought this, it kind of sank in for me personally. How many of us have had the same opportunity to see Jesus, but we allowed things in our lives, just like Zacchaeus, to block us from seeing Christ? Now, I know what you're thinking. Watch it, preacher. You're getting a little too, getting a little too personal here, right? You're getting a little bit too much in, in my space, right? But, but think about it. How often does Jesus want us to see him, but we're too busy looking at something else? How many times does he want to show us something, but we can't see what he has for us because something else has our attention? Now, maybe you're in the room this morning, you're thinking, well, I'm really not that short, right? But I wonder how many people are in the room this morning who, though you may not be small in size, you certainly feel small in stature because of the life that you live. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Jesus is passing through Jericho, and it's not the city walls that have to come down anymore. But there are still walls up everywhere from the people that Jesus is encountering. And I thought, man, how many walls do the people in this building this morning have up in their lives? And I'm not talking about the walls that you see on this church. I'm talking about the walls that have been put up in your life that is keeping you from seeing what Jesus wants to do. This could be walls from busyness that have you pushed down and feel small before Jesus today. This could be walls from stress that have you pushed down and you feel small before Jesus today. This could be walls from certain decisions that you've made that have you pushed down and feel small before Jesus today. This could be walls from your past that have you pushed down and you feel small before Jesus today. I thought to myself, what is it in my life that might be keeping me from seeing Jesus? What walls does Jesus need to tear down in me? Look at verse 4. So this is what Zacchaeus does. Yeah, he's small. His size has limited him, but it doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. Why? Because he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. Now, this is where the story gets familiar to us, right? Now we're thinking about that old song that we heard when we were kids about the wee little man that climbed up into a sycamore tree. This is 
Zacchaeus. And on this particular day, I don't know what else has passed down those roads of Jericho. I don't know what else has excited the people like this. I don't know what else they've wanted to see before as it was passing through. But on this particular day, Zacchaeus had made up his mind that if Jesus is passing by, if I can't see him because of the crowd, I will do whatever it takes to get a glimpse of Jesus. Why? He apparently knew something that maybe many people today have forgotten. Now, maybe you're thinking, Danny, who cares that he was short? That's really not that big of a deal. Well, friends, let me point this out to you this morning. How how many things in our lives that are a lot less of an issue than being short keep us from Jesus? I was thinking about this the other day as I was thinking about Zacchaeus being blocked from, 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 from this encounter with Christ. And I thought to myself, how many people in churches today feel like they're not encountering Jesus and they've got way less blocking them than Zacchaeus did? In other words, they've got way more opportunities to experience time with Jesus than Zacchaeus could have ever known about. You say, Danny, what do you mean? We got a Bible in every single room of our house, but yet we still go days without encountering Jesus. We got worship gatherings almost every day of the week, yet we still have problems encountering Jesus. We got Bible studies, we got small group gatherings, and we still feel like we don't have people around us to help us encounter Jesus. We got opportunities to serve every moment of every week if you want to, and yet we still feel like we're not encountering Jesus. We spent a day yesterday that was so busy and so difficult and so many people put things into that was mind-boggling and I thought to myself if you haven't encountered Jesus you should be right here with us today in the community center watching these people get clothes watching these people have conversations about one who can do more than put clothes on them but can cleanse them forever man how many things do we have opportunity how many different opportunities do we have to encounter Jesus but yet we still don't when Zacchaeus was willing, even in just his size, to do whatever he had to do, zero excuses, he was going to see Jesus. Listen, I don't know how small or how young Zacchaeus may have been. As a matter of fact, the the word stature may not mean size at all. It may just mean age or maturity level. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you feel like today. Maybe you feel small because the world's been beating you up or maybe you feel small because of some decisions you've made or maybe you feel small because you're young in this building and and don't think you're old enough to make a big impact on the world. I I, I don't know what that looks like for you, but here's, here's what I know. Zacchaeus wasn't going to miss Jesus. Can I tell you something, friends, as we move on? I know this is a little cheesy, but go with me. Jesus is passing us right now this morning. He's here. We have the opportunity to encounter him. The question for us is this. Are we going to do like Zacchaeus and do whatever it takes to see him as he passes by? Or are we going to continue to let all these other walls in our life keep him once again Another week goes by, another worship gathering happens, another opportunity to meet with Jesus, and still we're blocked by whatever crowd we have in our life, and we miss an opportunity to see Jesus. Listen, friends, he's passing today. Will you see him or will you miss him? Watch this. Let me show you the second thing. Zacchaeus' situation doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. His size may have been an issue, but he climbed a tree 
for that, right? Nothing, no walls were going to block him from seeing Jesus. Also, listen, his situation doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. Look at verse five. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, talking about Zacchaeus, and came down and received him, received Jesus joyfully. Now you say, Danny, what do you mean by his situation. Well, for me, there's a couple of things that are interesting that stand out from this verse, and maybe it's just because of my past. But here's the first one that stands out to me. Jesus chose possibly the worst person in the crowd that day. Now think about it. He's passing through Jericho. I don't know how big this crowd is. I don't know how many people are there, but it's big enough that Zacchaeus has to climb up in a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. I don't know how many Pharisees, how many Sadducees, how many scribes. I don't know how many religious leaders. I don't know how many rich people. I don't know how many poor people. I have no idea who all the people are in that crowd that day, but I can tell you this. I bet none of them are worse off than Zacchaeus, and that's exactly exactly the person that Jesus finds. Why would he choose the worst person in the crowd that day? You want to know what else I think is really interesting? It's not just that Jesus chose possibly the worst person in the crowd that day, but also the worst person in the crowd that day wanted Jesus. Like, think about this for a moment. How many of us, when we're in the middle of our sin, want the pastor to walk into the room? How many of us, when we're doing what we know we're not supposed to do, want our Sunday school class to walk up to the table? How many of us, when we're in our worst condition, want to invite what we might consider the most holiest of people into the mess? None of us want that. But Zacchaeus, the worst person in the crowd, is not only chosen by Jesus, but he invites Jesus into the mess. I'm thinking this is not normal. This is not what typically happens. I mean, if it was me, if, if I was thinking, who's Jesus going to choose from that crowd that day? Here's what I'm thinking. Probably the most religious, probably the most holy, probably the most qualified, but not according to this encounter with Zacchaeus. And if I'm thinking, who out of that crowd that day is also going to want to see Jesus and, and, and encounter Jesus, I'm thinking, wouldn't this be the most religious, the most holy, the most churchy, the most qualified person? But listen, friends, not according to this encounter with Zacchaeus. As a matter of fact, he runs down from that tree, right? He's in a hurry and he joyfully receives Jesus into his home. You say, Danny, why would he do that? His situation is so bleak. It's so, it's so dire. He's the, he, he should be the one who's hiding in a corner. Don't let Jesus find me. Don't let God see what I'm doing. And certainly God wants to pass by without encountering him. Why would Zacchaeus be climbing a tree to see Jesus? Here's all I can imagine, friends. Listen, he's thinking about the demon-possessed guys who have been burdened their entire lives and Jesus set them free. He's thinking about the lepers and the diseased and all the other sick folks and he's thinking, man, Jesus walked right into their midst and he cured them. He's thinking about the woman caught in adultery and everybody's got their stones in their hands and they're about to kill him. But Jesus comes up and says, girl, you're forgiven. He's thinking, I heard about a guy his name was Levi. And Jesus walked up to his tax collecting booth 
and said, Levi, why don't you leave all that behind and follow me? And Matthew says, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. Matter of fact, just before this moment in Luke chapter 18, Jesus makes a statement like this one. The tax collector with the repentant heart is better off than the Pharisee. Listen, was Zacchaeus the guy that we would have picked in the crowd that day? Probably not. Was Zacchaeus the one they thought would choose Jesus that day? Probably not. But his situation didn't keep him from seeing Jesus. And can I tell you something, friends? Neither does yours. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look at this third thing. Zacchaeus, certainly his size doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. His, his situation doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. But also Zacchaeus' status doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look at verse 7. I love this. Actually, I hate it, but I love to hate it. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Listen, I can't highlight this enough. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. And when they, they all, they, 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 all I can think about is who is the they? I don't know, but can I tell you this? There are still the they today that still tries to keep the kingdom of God from moving forward. Not today, friends. The they can grumble all they want. The people who think I want it my way, this is how church was always done. I don't know why those, we let those people in our doors. I don't know why we're trying to help those that, that, that don't care. I don't know why. You put whatever you want to in there. They doesn't stop Jesus from changing somebody's life. Listen, I'm always shocked that people would be angry that Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house that day. You say, Danny, why? Because rather than grumble, the crowd should have been glad that Jesus was about to change a man who was doing wrong and that most of them hated. Like, think about that for a second. Why would we grumble about Jesus going to help Zacchaeus because he's a sinner when we should be praising God? It finally got through. Zacchaeus will finally change. He'll finally be reached. Jesus is coming. I don't know about you, but I just feel like this sounds so much like me. This sounds so much like church today. When people who are far from Jesus, what we might call the worst of sinners, when they come to church and all people do is grumble about why they're here or about why they think they would be welcome. And I don't know about you, friends, but I know this. We better be careful who we embrace and who we shun because none of us are better than anyone else. And all of us have been welcomed by Jesus. Can I tell you something, friends? The, the, the foot at the cross, it is level. You know what that means? We all come to God on the same exact level of desperate in need of a Savior and broken by our sin, destined for eternity in hell. I don't care how much stuff you have. I don't care how successful you've been. I don't care how rich or how poor or what your family name is. I don't care about anything else. You didn't bring it with you. You're not bringing it when you leave. All that matters is Jesus. It's funny that right before this, by the way, literally verses before this encounter, Jesus deals with healing a blind man. And the same crowd that grumbled was the same crowd that praised him. Listen, this, this literally the verse before Luke 19.1. Here's what it says. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. That's the blind man. 
And all the people, when they, there's the they again, saw it, gave praise to God. Literally, moments before, the crowd that's praising God for one person being changed is now grumbling at another person being changed. Listen, the crowd knew Zacchaeus was a sinner. Zacchaeus knew that he was a sinner. Jesus knew that Zacchaeus was a sinner, but Jesus still went to be the guest of such a sinner. I don't care what everyone else says about you. I don't care what everybody in Saltillo may know about you. I don't care about your past. Can I tell you something, friend? Jesus knew it long before them, and he still wants to take up residency in your life. Will you take him up on his invitation? Will you let him in? Think about it, friends. We're all like Zacchaeus. Hopefully we've gotten to a point where we've at least climbed up to a tree so that we can see Jesus, so that we can encounter him. And I don't care what mess you're in, whatever brokenness it is, can I tell you something? His invitation as he passes by is still the same. He wants you. Let me show you this last thing. Number four, this is it. Zacchaeus' size, of course, doesn't keep him. His situation, his status, none of those do. Can I tell you something else? Zacchaeus' stuff doesn't keep him from seeing Jesus either. I love verse eight. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now this, this, this moment is the true sign that Zacchaeus had been changed by his encounter with Jesus. It's no longer just about lip service with Zacchaeus. He's got his checkbook out. He's got his life out. He's got a blank slate open saying, here it is, God, settle all my debts. Everything I have is yours. You say, Danny, do we earn salvation? Is that what's happening here? No, not at all, friends. You know what's happening here? Zacchaeus, for the first time in his life, is being obedient to what God has asked him to do. You say, what do you mean? Well, back Back in Exodus 22, if someone had stole something from anyone else, here's all Zacchaeus knew. The right thing to do was to pay it back fourfold. As a matter of fact, there's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where the prophet Nathan goes to David and tells him about a rich guy who steals a lamb from a poor guy. And even though he had many lambs, he took the one lamb that the poor guy had and he slaughtered it to give it to his guests. He stole it from the poor to make himself more wealthy. Is this not a picture of the life of Zacchaeus? And David responds back to Nathan, Tell me who that man is. I'll go get him right now. I will punish him fourfold. That's the statement David makes according to the law. And Nathan says, hey, David, the guy is you, <laughs> right? Zacchaeus doesn't need Jesus to quote a story to him. He doesn't need him to reveal scripture and Old Testament uh, uh, laws to him. You want to know why? Because Zacchaeus got it. He knew that if Jesus, who had saved so many before, would be willing to meet with him in his house, Zacchaeus was willing to give whatever he had back because he wanted to follow Jesus. The idea is that of restoration. It must be restored to that person fourfold. Zacchaeus had been restored by Jesus, and his only response was to restore to those that he had defrauded and stolen from. He wanted to give back what he had taken. Did he have to have that for Jesus to dine with him? No. Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, if you'll give back fourfold, then I'll come eat at your house. That's not how it works. Jesus comes and eats at his house, and then Zacchaeus wants to give it all back. You say, Danny, what do you mean? That's a picture of salvation. 
That's it. It's not that we gave it back. It's not that we earned it. And so then Jesus came. No, we did nothing. Jesus came. But when we encountered him, we left not the same. This is so true of Zacchaeus. I said this in Sunday school today, and I believe it so much that there's no more powerful testimony for the work of Jesus than a changed life. Repentance is the response of the redeemed, friends. This is what Zacchaeus experiences. As a matter of fact, there's another story in the gospel accounts where another guy meets Jesus, and he's got a lot of stuff too, but his response to Jesus is a little bit different. This is what it says. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Listen, both of them had a lot. Both of them encountered Jesus. One of them left changed in a good way, not in a sorrowful way. Listen, there was nothing that he wouldn't give now that Jesus had not given him everything. What about you? What about me? Have we encountered Jesus like this? Have we come to the end of ourselves and our old ways longing for something more? Do you really want Jesus or is your stuff keeping you from seeing him? Now, maybe you say, Danny, how do you know that his life was changed? Well, it wasn't simply because of what he was willing to do, but because of what Jesus says to him next. Look at verse nine. And Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Listen, this phrase, son of Abraham, expresses that salvation came not in what he could do, but in his faith and trust in Jesus. The same with Abraham in Genesis 15. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Jesus makes one of the most beautiful statements in all of the gospels. It's in Luke 19, verse 10. Look at it. This is it. Jesus says, for the son of man, he's talking about himself, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I heard one commentator say that this sums up the entire goal of Jesus on the earth and that it's so important that Jesus doesn't even use more than one syllable words. Like read that verse again. It's so simple and basic that anybody can read it. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't want anybody to mistake his goal on this earth. It wasn't to condemn you. It wasn't to judge you. Although if you don't follow, that day will come and you do it to yourself. But Jesus came to seek the lost. Jesus came to save the lost. Listen, this story helps us understand one thing. Jesus wants to love you, not judge you. He didn't go to the crowd that day and find the most successful religious person to spend his time with. He didn't tell Zacchaeus about all the things in his life that were terrible. He didn't tell Zacchaeus how angry God was at him. He didn't tell Zacchaeus that he had to do anything to be accepted or to be loved by God. He simply embraced him right where he was. God isn't like the emperor Commodus. He's not waiting to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. He's always betting on you. He's not waiting for you to get your life right. He's not waiting for you to do everything perfect. He's simply waiting for you to come down from whatever tree you're distancing yourself in and embrace him. Jesus couldn't have been more plain than he was in John chapter three. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all know that one. We like that one. But listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Can I tell you something, friends? Jesus came 
Not only that we could encounter him to be saved from our sins, but so that we could encounter him every day as we walk in newness of life that only he can bring. Listen, are we too small in stature? Absolutely. Is our situation too bad? Is our status too horrible? Absolutely. Is our stuff too messy? You better believe it certainly is. Does that keep Jesus from passing by? Does that keep him from finding us right where we are and changing everything? No, it doesn't. He doesn't come to you because you're perfect. He doesn't come to you because you've got everything figured out. He doesn't come to you because you did it all right yesterday. No, that's not why he's here. He comes because he loves you, not because he wants to judge you. He comes because he offers a better way. He comes because the only way we can live as he desires is if we encounter him. Can I tell you something, friends? He came. And I don't care what kind of walls you put up, he can tear them down. I don't care what kind of junk is in your past, he can rid you of it. I don't care what kind of mistakes you've made. He's not concerned with your mistakes. He's concerned with the masterpiece that he's going to create out of your mess. Can I tell you something, friends? Jesus is passing through right now. The invitation that he gave Zacchaeus is the same invitation that he gives to us. Don't be the they in the crowd that grumbles and is upset and is only concerned about yourself and doesn't know about, don't be them. Don't be the rest of the crowd that doesn't actually see what Jesus is trying to do. Listen, be the worst. <laughs> be Zacchaeus who is willing to climb up in a tree because he did not want to miss Jesus. Hey friends, how many days have passed where we've missed Jesus? I don't know about you, but I want an encounter with him. Can I tell you something? He's still passing every day. He's still offering the invitation every day. And we got a whole lot less excuses than Zacchaeus does. The question is, will we invite him to eat with us? Will we come down and receive him into our house? Will we follow Jesus? Let me pray for you. Father, we love you and thank you and praise you. Jesus, you're awesome. Thank you, God. for our